so we're headed back to the other side of the Boundary Waters to Ely and uh, we figured we'd take Matthew with us from his home in Grand Marais and, and give him a chance to check out the mine site. He's going to meet up with our buddy Levi who also works for the campaign who's just going to give him a little tour. Alright, so Matthew, how are you feeling about it? Yeah, I'm actually really excited. Uh, I was kind of hoping that this would be a part of this unfolding journey and the fact that I get to actually see this for my own eyes. I think it's really going to help me understand. And uh, this Levi character seems to be pretty front and center with this whole... I mean, it seems like he knows a lot about all this stuff, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what I learn. We just turned off of Highway 1 onto a gravel road sort of lined on both sides with pine and spruce and scattered wetlands. We're headed into the mine site. Some young grouse flying off the road and out of our path. We're doing the deep dive. We're gonna see what it looks like on the ground, what all this fuss is about. My tour guide today is Levi. What's your last name, Levi? Lexvold. Can I introduce yourself while you drive? Yeah, sure. So I'm Levi Lexvold. I work with Northeastern Minnesotans for Wilderness and the Campaign to Save the Boundary Waters. I've been a staff member now since 2015. Uh, since then, my job's kind of evolved. Over the years, I do a little bit of everything, and honestly, the best part of my job is what we're doing right now. So we are right on top of where Twin Metals is proposing to put their copper nickel mine on the edge of Birch Lake in the South Coishby River, just a few miles from the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. But we've got appropriate music along for the ride. Can you turn that up a little bit? Oh, just yeah. for my sake. Sure. Some, some sludgy doom metal. Yeah. Progressive metal, not precious metal. Let's go back. <laughs> Let's go back and Setting the stage. <laughs> we have a canoe on top of the rig. We're going to be traveling on foot and by water. Uh, water is the most efficient way to move through this area, which is an important part of why we're here. I'm learning as we go here, we're talking about an underground mine. First underground mine in Minnesota, um, if it would be built since uh, the closure of the Pioneer Mine in Ely in 1967. What distinguishes an underground mine versus other types of mines that we would have in this area? Are we talking about? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, typically people think of, you know, the taconite mining we see over on the Iron Range, these just gigantic, huge open pits. Whereas here, you know, you've got an underground mine. So they'll have um, the surface infrastructure would be. 1,138 acres, I want to say. It might be a little bit more, might be a little bit less, but um, the so they've got like the main surface infrastructure, which we're kind of driving towards right now, and then that includes two long declines, so two giant tunnels that go down into their underground mine site, and I kind of think of that as like a giant underground city. They plan to mine to a depth of up to 4,500 feet. Most of the you know, all the blasting, all, most of the crushing, all that stuff's gonna happen underground. And then they'll send some of that then up to the surface for final crushing and then going through the concentrator and all that kind of stuff. But we can dig into that more once we're out there. Sure, so I mean, we're essentially talking about building an underground city. Yeah. Levi grabbed our canoe, 
flung it on his shoulders and we portaged down to the shores of Birch Lake, where we continued our exploration of the mine site. If you were to show somebody a picture of this, you really couldn't you know, tell the difference of this and a Boundary Waters Lake, right? So we've got these nice, beautiful rock outcrops and erratics in the lake. Um, and then the bay, kind of, you know, all along the perimeter of it, we've got wild rice that's growing that we went and checked out here a little bit earlier. And our canoe, you know, is just lodged, you know, lodged right into a beaver lodge right now, you know? So this is probably one of the more popular recreation lakes outside of the Boundary Waters in our area, for sure. I mean, where we put in is one of 14 established campsites on the lake. Yeah, I mean, all I hear right now is wind and some birds, you know. If they built this, we'd be hearing, you know, heavy equipment. We'd be hearing dozers and steamrollers and all kinds of nasty stuff. I mean, we wouldn't be able to have the experience we're having right now. We paddled from bay to bay. At each new site, Levi had more things to show me, pointing out the expansive nature of this massive mine site. So anyway, we're sitting in this bay right here, and then behind that tree line, just right behind you there, about, I don't know, I'd say about a thousand feet at most, um, would be the Twin Metals Processing Facility. So that's where the, the main processing site will be located, right? That's aside from the dry stack tailings basin, this is their other major surface infrastructure feature where all the work's gonna be done. There are five contact water ponds. Similar to what we saw with the dry stack tillings facility, you have like those little piles of reclamation materials. Again, in order to build this thing, we have to scrape it all down to bedrock, even everything out, make it nice and level, you know, put in their processing facility. So they'll have their, their decline, so that's their two tunnels that go to the underground mine site. Again, they're planning to mine to a depth of up to 4,500 feet. A lot of that work is going to take place underground. That's where They'll have 64 vehicles. Originally it was, you know, gonna be diesel equipment, stuff like that, but their latest announcement as they're kind of greenwashing their project is talking about switching everything over to electric vehicles to use down there to kind of cut down on their emissions. But we'll still have to deal with fugitive dust from all the blasting and everything that's happening down there in the grinding. And then you'll have you know, residuals from blasting the materials they're using to do the blasting, and then exhaust from all their propane heaters. Again, you have like a, think of the, the giant underground city. You need to get air down there. Pretty soon here, once we're done in this bay, we're gonna paddle over to the next one. And that's where their decline kind of goes behind the tree line. And then their ventilation raises will be on that point. And so they'll be exchanging air. So they're gonna use like a, it's a push-pull system. Pushes air out of the mine, and then the other one pulls air down. Exchanging you know, millions of cubic feet of air per minute. It's going to be intense. What they've told people is that it will, the sound will just be like a vacuum cleaner running in the woods. Like, don't worry about it. It's just going to sound like a shop vac. No big deal. Um, and when it comes to blasting, you know, it's just going to feel like a little earthquake when that happens. So you don't have to go back and re-listen. That's correct. Levi said earthquake. So with their, their processing site here, you've got their lean ore stockpile, where they're going to be just you know piling up all that ore they're taking out of the underground mine before it goes through final crushing. So all that final crushing will take place here on the surface, right behind you. That's going to be a pretty loud process, is that's going through the milling. Once the ore has gone through final crushing, and you know, they've got it down to that you know, more silty, sandy-like texture, It'll go through the flotation process. So basically, they take all of that ore that, process, you know, that they've ground up, 
put it into a tank for flotation where they make it so that the ore that they're after, so the copper, nickel, and platinum group elements, um, becomes hydrophobic, so it's afraid of water. And then they inject a bunch of air into it. And then what happens, all those metals then kind of bubble up to the surface, and then they just skim it off the top. It's kind of like a, like skimming you know, buttercream off of, off of milk, I think would be one way of putting it. And that's the concentrate that they then ship out to market. Oh, and the other thing too, we're gonna paddle right past it, is on this peninsula where we came in, is their water intake facility. So they're basically putting a big straw into the lake to suck up up to 130 million gallons a year from the lake. Back to kind of the processing site. So you've got your Leonor stockpile, your contact water ponds, sediment ponds, all that kind of stuff. And then you've got the concentrator. So that's where they're, you know, it's going through that, that flotation process. You know, above this tree line, we're gonna see their concentrator, we're gonna see their Leonor stockpile. I mean, all that stuff will be visible to us. We're probably gonna hear the milling. You're gonna hear all the traffic. I mean, right now you just hear the wind and an occasional motorboat going past, you know, or geese, you know, like we had earlier. But you're kind of converting what now is like a multiple use recreation lake. And you're turning that into pretty much a single use. This campsite right behind me, there's no way somebody's going to use that if it's directly adjacent to um, a giant mining facility. Like you, To me, you really are transforming this hunk of the forest to a single use, and that use is just for the extraction of copper, nickel. And even when they're doing exploration work, I mean, you could hear that low frequency, like, like 24-7, and then like the, the banging of pipes on metal carries across the lake really well. You, know, you can just think of it as like your primary footprint, right? So like the immediate loss of what is currently an intact you know, boreal forest ecosystem. You know, so you have the immediate loss of those acres, and then you know, potential pollution coming from that, whether it's air pollution, acid mine drainage. Then you have that secondary imprint that's quite a bit bigger, and that's those impacts of things like sound and light and air pollution that emanate from that primary footprint. And being that the mine site itself, by the way, the, from the you know, crow flies is a little over three miles to entry point 32 and 33. I mean, you're right on the edge. I could see even just those impacts of sound and light, you know, bleeding over into the wilderness area and impacting wilderness character. Not to mention, you know, then the ever-present threat of acid mine drainage getting its you know, way into the waters we're in now in Birch Lake, then making their way down South Quishway and White Iron Chain where it re-enters the boundary waters at Fall Lake hits the border route and kind of goes from there. Once that gets into the water, I see no way how you're getting that back out. Like, there's just, I, no, I don't think it's happening. Not with how interconnected these waters are. That dry stack tailings facility, the mound itself is about 428 acres. And when it's completed, it'll be 130 feet high. And just so for, for comparison, I mean, right now, most of the trees around us it's a mix of spruce, jack pine, some birch, and some poplar. The tallest tree around us is maybe 50 feet. White pine back there might be 60 at the most. So you've got your dry stack tailings facility that's 130 feet high, so that's gonna tower over everything here. 428 acres um, over everything, um, and it's left on the surface permanently. So one of the things you'd asked in the car was, okay, maybe they wanted, they wanted to use the dry stack method of storage because that way you don't have to have like you know the tailings basin and the dam and the issue of a dam breach well the downside of dry stacking well for for one as i said earlier it's made for 
dry, arid environments or cold, arctic environments, you've got that sand. So, like, imagine, like, kind of dried-out sand castle. And it's tailing, so it's like the, you know, the leftover from the mine processing. So it's kind of described as a, as a mixture of, like, sand and flour. You know, reducing the moisture content and then piling that on this facility and then using 37, up to 37 pieces of heavy equipment. So think of, like, you know, dozers and the big steamrollers to compact all that and basically make like an artificial hill over time. By the time it's done, it'll be up to 130 feet high and then a permanent feature on the landscape. In order to, to make their facility, they've got to you know, scrape off everything that's there now. You're getting it down to bedrock and then you're likely gonna put down like a betonite clay liner or something like that. That material they're removing from the surface gets stored as like a reclamation material. So when they are finally done, you know, with the mining and, you know, they're about to move on, they take all that reclamation material and just kind of spread it over the top, add some more to it, and are just basically putting a layer of dirt on top of tailings and then covering it with, you know, like grass seed or something just to kind of plant it. The idea of having like a living liner, in a sense, and hoping that that would, you know, stand up to the test of time. So the issue with that, though, is dry stack tailings can rehydrate over time, right? We're in a pretty wet environment. I mean, we get a lot of rain and snow. You can see how over time there would be a possibility then for this dry stack tailings facility to rehydrate over, over time, and then there's nothing to hold it back, right? I mean, so, inevitably it will because time is yeah, there's time, an abundance of time. There is an abundance of time. So eventually, yeah, that, and this is a permanent feature on the landscape forever, right? And so what happens if you've got a big giant pile of sand and you start adding water to it, right? Like it's eventually just kind of going to flow out. Mm -hmm. um, there's nothing to hold it back. So Sandcastle science. Sandcastle science, right? So it goes into Keeley Creek, it goes into Birch Lake. And that's kind of like the long-term impact. The immediate impact is called fugitive dust. Very dry, fine material. Think of um, driving down a gravel road in the summer, right? Like hot day, hasn't rained, you know, and you just, all that dust that gets kicked up. Now imagine that on a facility that is almost a square mile in size. So all that fugitive dust then is getting kicked up off the facility and then it's going into the surrounding forest, streams, and you know, here out to Birch Lake. And that fugitive dust can contain pretty nasty particulate matter, sulfates, any of the heavy metals they weren't able to get out through processing, leftover regions from the processing, stuff like that, then gets into the surrounding. Levi's description of the landscape with a mine left an impact on me to see how things would be altered forever. But that immediate impact pales in comparison to the larger impact that could happen on the wilderness. Right now, we're sitting in this big bay on the northeastern side of Birch Lake, just south of where the South Cushway River flows into the lake. Birch River comes in at the southwest, and then it's a little over 20 miles long to get to River Point. We've got the dam is there where that bridge is. So yeah, you can think of it as just like one big wide river. Think of a wide iron lake, garden, fall. I mean, that's all pretty much the Cushway River, really. It's just these parts where it widens out. So just to the southeast of us, so right over there, you can kind of see on the other side of that tree line, the bay we just paddled out of. That's where we saw all those geese, and we kind of paddled over into here. From this location, I'm pretty sure we'd be able to see some of the surface infrastructure, just right there to the southeast above that tree line there. Directly behind you in this bay, you see all the wild rice back there. It's where the North Nokomis Creek comes in, and so we're doing most of our wild ricing um, this past Saturday. Your underground mine, that starts, that's all like right over there. And directly behind your back to straight to the east is where that decline's located. So that's that tunnel that's going from the surface mine site down to the underground mining operations. You know, they're talking about having you know, their air exchangers that are just gonna sound like a vacuum, you know, a shop vac running in the woods. 
it's all located right there. So everything we've kind of paddled past so far is just kind of the scale of what they're looking at right now. Yeah, so that's the facility right behind you. So everything we've paddled is basically a mine site, you know, where we put in at that camp, second campsite, that's the size of it. So it's water everywhere. I mean, look at this map. <laughs> All I see is blue. All you see is blue. Just the cultural side of it. I mean, so River Point is right over here. We could probably drive over there. That's right where the Birch River and the South Quisha River would have, you know, met before the dam. You know, so the water levels are probably a little bit lower. And they actually found the site of an ancient Laurel village on that point that dates back like 2,500 years. Oftentimes when I take people out here, even on a Boundary Waters trip, you know, if you're, at, you're staying at a nice campsite, that's a place that's been used for thousands of years. It was good to camp at now, it's, it was good to camp at like 500 years ago. I think there's a really big difference between this wilderness area and wilderness areas of the, like of the west, where that has more of that intimidation fact, you know, your big high mountain peaks, you know, kind of like biblical form of wilderness where people aren't welcome. Desert. Yeah, or desert, yeah, whereas here, like this is to me one of the most welcoming landscapes I've ever been in. You know, it's just, for me, it's just, it's home. Like, it's an inviting, comfortable place where I just feel like at peace. Like this is, a, this landscape has become a part of me. I love it. And, you know, and dealing with a threat like this, it's like, you know, dealing with a threat to a family member. You know, I just want to protect this place. You know, it's at risk. I'm doing what I can to stop it from being impacted. If you took somebody out here and you didn't tell them they were in a federally designated, they wouldn't know the difference. It's a jurisdictional line we put on a map. The name, yeah, water doesn't know. It's exactly, which is why with our campaign, we're looking at trying to protect the watershed itself. Having a designated wilderness area doesn't mean a damn thing if you're putting, you know, such harmful industry on the edge of it, right? Because that's just, it's just a line that we created on a map. It doesn't really mean anything as far as the water and the air and the wildlife are concerned. This has been identified as one of the seven hot spots in the lower 48 for climate change resiliency when it comes to species. And we're, we're talking about such a large, intact ecosystem when you think of Boundary Waters, Superior National Forest, Quetico, Voyagers National Park, like it's one big massive system. And it's incredibly important to the future of wildlife in our area, to the survival of us as a species. Like we, we need this, you know. That's why we had things like the Great Lakes Compact. They recognized that that is an economic driver so rather than allowing water from the Great Lakes Basin to be taken out, you keep it here because just knowing that people are going to move here for that, and that, that becomes the economic driver. Like it's having clean, abundant water. It's a big part of what's going on here. And we are compromised. Right, I mean, this wild rice, this is the most nutritional like cereal grain on the planet. And <laughs> it's here in abundance. Like you can harvest enough in the fall to last you all year long. That's why the Anishinaabe came here. You know, go to where the land grows on the water. Yes, yeah, so as long as we take care of it, it'll take care of us. Is kind of the way I look at it. But I typically describe it as like we're in a giant freshwater sea with islands all over the place. Northeast Minnesota is basically just water. We're one of the most water-rich environments I've ever had the, the pleasure to be in. And the type of mining that's being proposed here has devastating impacts on water resources. I mean, they even have issues with this, you know, in rather arid places where there's not a lot of water. And they're talking about putting what the EPA has described as, you know, the nation's most toxic industry in one of our most water-rich environments adjacent to, you know, one of the most popular, one of the most visited wilderness areas in the country. So to me, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, what I want to drive home to people when they get here is this is just the wrong place to put this. Like, it's more about a siting issue in my mind. It's not about, you know, what kind of tailings facility they're going to use, what's their processing going to look like. It's just, 
to me, you have to start with the question of, is this the right place to put this kind of industrial activity? And once I get people out here, you know, I want them to start asking themselves that question. And every time I take somebody out here, they're just blown away and come to the same conclusion as me. It's just, there's no way, there's just no way you could possibly do this here without having an impact on the surrounding forest and waters. There's just absolutely no, no way to do that. To satisfy my ever-present skeptic, I did some of my own research, and it turns out that the Environmental Protection Agency does estimate that 40% of the watersheds in the United States are already contaminated by pollution from hard rock mines, including copper nickel. It just makes so much sense that the waterways in the Boundary Waters and Superior National Forest, in their interconnectedness, could result or will result in water pollution traveling undetected for years, decades, maybe centuries. And that got me thinking about something Bob Tammen, as I like to call him, Minor Bob, told me in our conversation we had earlier. If you look at a map of northern Minnesota, it is all water. And we have a record of mining companies not being very respectful of water. and. As the years go by, we're seeing more indications of how valuable our water is, and not only to our, not only to us. Uh, a few years ago, I think Harper's Magazine had an article about the Colorado River starting to dry up, and you know those western states, southwestern states, are worried about water, and they said they interviewed one water manager out there and said, well, you know, we do have alternatives. We got the Missouri River, the Mississippi River, Lake Superior. And I read that and a little chill went through my heart. I thought they've made a mess of their water supply out there in Arizona, uh, a lot of those western states. And they think the solution is to throw a bunch of money up our way and take our water away from us. And so when they mentioned the Missouri River, the Mississippi River, Lake Superior, that's our backyard. And it helped to indicate to us how much our water is worth, not just to the state of Minnesota, but to the United States of America. Our water is valuable. And to allow a foreign corporation to come in here and get a claim on our minerals and on our water is a terrible liability. These experiences impact me a lot. It really shifts my perspective on this issue. But when I lay in bed at night, questions just run through my mind. That skeptic keeps asking, how do we know for sure? Who else should we talk to? So there are still more people to talk to, and there are more answers to find.